Welcome to episode 45 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. We're going to start today with one of Britain's greatest actors, who's currently starring as Johann Sebastian Bach in Nina Rain's new play, Bark and Sons, at the Bridge Theatre. Bark and Sons opened on 23rd of June. It's directed by none other than Nick Heitner, who was brilliant, of course, on our podcast last year. And as I'm sure many of you will have worked out by now, we are, of course, talking about Simon Russell Beale. Good afternoon, Simon. Good afternoon. I want to know what Nick talked about. Oh, well, it was in lockdown, so he talked about the woes of the bridge in lockdown. But, Simon, I can't tell you how thrilled we are that you're here. Now, this is an extraordinary play because, though I'm sure most of our listeners are more than familiar with Bach's work, they might not know so much about his extraordinary life and family. For a start, he had 20 children, and it's a relationship with some of them that the play is about, as the title suggests. So can you start by telling our listeners about these relationships at the core of Nina's play. He had, as you say, uh, a lot of children. He had 20 children. I think 11 of them died in infancy. I mean, it was just terrible. And and had two wives. And he produced, it was a musical family. His his, uh, father, grandfather, great-grandfather were all musicians. So they, of course, were trained as musicians as well, the sons. And three of them achieved some sort of profile. Um, And it's about, it's about two of those, uh, C.P.E. Bach, or we call Carl, and Wilhelm Friedenbach, who we call Wilhelm in the play. And uh, C.P. was the great star, I think, of the generation after Bach in Prussia and Hamburg. And uh, Wilhelm was less successful. So basically it's about what it must be like to grow up as a son of a genius, I suppose, and the pressure that that puts on both of them. And one of them succeeds, as it were, in inverted commas, it succeeds, and the other one doesn't. But Bach was fabulously rude, wasn't he? So this is a play, it was where a lot of the play's humour comes from, was this tension. I have to say, I didn't know any of this, by the way. Charlotte writes the script. I didn't know he had 20 children. But there's this tension between his profanity, his love of sex and irascibility, and his, as well as his deep religious faith in church music. And of course, uh, for the layman, big echoes of the great play Amadeus as well. I mean, to be fair to him, he loves sex, and it, but actually with only his only with his two wives. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds a bit, a, bit, a bit nitpicking, but he wasn't, I don't think, funny enough, one of his sons calls him a shagger in the play. And uh, I think he, yeah, I think he obviously liked sex. He liked drinking beer. We know that because of his second marriage, he ordered an enormous amount of beer. We have the bills for that. Um, and, and as you say, he was famously irascible, although I might, I, my sympathy goes out to him. I can't think he ever heard a really good performance of any of his work. That's what I guess, because he was dealing with pretty, not ropey is the wrong word, but requires it to be sort of, you know, cobbled together. And his stuff, as you probably know, is incredibly difficult to sing. So his irascibility, I think, is forgivable <laughs> because he probably was just so frustrated and um, of course endlessly dealing with his salary and negotiating his salary with the council and the church and the prince or whatever uh, which all those musicians had to do at the time so it must have been a pretty uh, fraught existence I would think so I forgive him for his irascibility he, he seemed to, I think he loved his children I think that's and that's I think evident in the play I heard you being interviewed on Front Row and I hadn't realised that music was such a huge part of your own life because I, I heard you saying you sang every day as a choir boy between 7 and 21 and actually went to Guildhall to study as a singer so, so I'm just really interested in that and, and one wonder, just as a quick sort of detail, what happened to make you turn to acting rather than pursue a 
entirely musical career? Well, the simplest answer is that I wasn't very good <laughs> as a singer. <laughs> but I, did, I think there was something more going on. I, I, yes, I was a chorister at St Paul's. I uh, had that amazing musical training that those very top flight cathedrals give young singers, you know. Uh, so that amazing education. Um, and then I went to university as a choral scholar, so I had to sing uh, every day uh, in chapel. So it's absolutely part of my life, and then part of the musical life of the university, and then, and then like a lot of my friends, including I mean I I I was at university with some great, what are now great singers, you know Chris Purvis, Simon Keenly Side, Mark Pabble, who of course is one of the great Bach evangelists of our our time. Um, so that was that was my world, and I and I sort of I think it was probably laziness. I thought oh well I'm, I you know I'll go and do I'll train as a singer, but something else is happening at the same time, which is um, my my great English teacher at school and the degree I was reading, which was English, was meant that my interest in Shakespeare was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think probably that in the end sort of tipped the balance. So tell us about the meeting with Frederick the Great. Ah, well, this is where the play, the idea of the play started. I read a book and, and I told Nick about this story. And the story is that Bach, in his later years, sort of respected but regarded as very old-fashioned sitting in Leipzig. His son, Karl, CPE, is head of music or harpsichordist, chief harpsichordist at Frederick's court. And Frederick says, I'd love to meet your father. So Bach, older Bach, goes up there. And Frederick is a great keen amateur musician, amateur composer, as you know, a Francophile, elegant, tasteful a sort of supporter of the new style that was coming through, which led to Haydn and Mozart, that's the lighter style, called the Galant style. And he, he uh, also a great collector of forte pianos. So there he, he was in his court and Bach arrived and he said, look, there are all these forte pianos, this new instrument that can play soft and loud, and I'd like you to play them. And he said, I'm going to go do a test. I'm going to give you a subject and you're to construct a fugue out of it off the top of your head, improvise a fugue in three parts, that's three separate independent lines. Bach went, okay, uh, yeah, and he could do it because <laughs> he's a genius. And then Frederick said, I want you to do six lines. And Bach said, I can't do it. And he went home, Bach, and a few weeks later sent Frederick a huge packet of music, all based on the theme, including a six-part view, uh, but using various different styles and various different sort of musical puzzles, which I think, I believe, Frederick never opened. But it was it was a sort of test that Bach failed. It was an impossible test. And we th and I think it was Arnold Schoenberg, who was uh, one of the great 20th century composers, of course, who was the first person to say, who composed this theme? I suspect his son composed this theme. And he was there for this test. And why did he compose such a difficult theme? Was it to show off his father's skills or was it in a way to humiliate his father? So that story was where the whole basis of the play started, I think, and the whole basis of father-son rivalry started. The other quick thing to say about Frederick, and Ed, you, you, you know this better than I do, but he, his father was an absolute brute and famously uh, hated Frederick for being effeminate, curling his hair, being Frenchified. Um, and Frederick had a great friend called Hans, who could have been his lover. And uh, his father took Hans, arrested him, and executed him in front, beheaded him in front of Frederick. No. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely awful. And also, uh, I 
I read, uh, ordered that his body, his headless body, should be left untouched for 24 hours, not covered or not taken away, so that Frederick, from his room, had to see it. So that makes Bach and Carl's relationship look quite gentle. <laughs> yes, but it, was, it makes it was, Game of Thrones look quite gentle. It's quite... So what sort of audiences are you playing to at the moment? In terms of capacity... Yeah, and just the whole reaction. I mean, they must be thrilled to be back in a theatre, aren't they? Yes, it was... They've done it very elegantly here. I mean, just come and see it, because they've because it's a new theatre, they can take out the seats that aren't used. So it actually looks... Oh. It looks a bit like the Curzon Mayfair Cinema, you know. <laughs> it's, like, mm. quite luxurious. People are sort of <laughs> lounging in sort of pairs of seats, you know. And um, But from the stage, it, uh, it uh, looks full. I mean, not full, but it looks it looks you know healthy, but it doesn't look as if there's lots of empty seats, which is great. So psychologically for us, that's marvelous. And yeah, I think oh god, you know, I think people are, are just just dying for this. So it's um yeah, there's that sense of just being back. Oh well, what a great place to end. I mean, huge good luck with it, and um, I can't wait to come and see it. Yes, we're going to be there. No, let, let <laughs> me know. We have met once, haven't we, Ed? I think once outside Sadler's Wells. We did. We met with you and Nick. Yeah, gosh, well remembered. And I, I referenced a reference to you in Nick's autobiography, and Nick practically fell over. Why? He couldn't believe because <laughs> he, he couldn't believe I'd actually read his autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific! Thank you for remembering meeting me. <laughs> what a great day to end on. Thank you very much. We're very excited that the fifth. Folkestone Triennial is back in July, so quick maths means it's 15 years old, I think. With the plot, an extraordinarily ambitious lineup that will spread all over the town, include 20 outdoor newly commissioned artworks by artists including Gilbert and George, who managed to blag their way onto our podcast, <laughs> Richard Deacon, Rana Begum, Atakwami, and Pilar Quinteros. Some of these will remain as permanent exhibitions, and it's all part of Folks' mission to make the town a better place in which to live, work, and play, and to visit. Here to tell us more about what we can see between July and September is curator Lewis Biggs. Good morning, Lewis. Good morning, Ed. Great to be on your podcast. Thank you. Well, good morning, Lewis, and what a lovely thing to be looking forward to in July. We're definitely going to be coming. And I, I've read that you've said COVID climate change and all the traumatic human rights abuses that have been going on around the world over the last year have had a real impact on how you've curated this. And also the fact that we've all been in lockdown has changed how we view and what we want from our surroundings. So can you start by telling us what you really want people to take away from this massive exhibition? Well, I want people to have a wonderful time in Folkestone, of course, that's the, that's the main thing. But of course, I want the exhibition also to be thought provoking. And the thoughts that I want it to provoke are about how the extent to which we all live in stories, the degree to which we all live in our heads, and to some extent, we're imprisoned in our heads. And, and the COVID pandemic has exaggerated that uh, because we've also been imprisoned in our homes. Uh, but actually, there's always been a real world out there, which, uh, which perhaps in the end matters more than the stories in our heads. So we get things done by having stories in our heads, and, we, and, we, and, we, uh, and, and, that's, and that's our identity, and our, uh, that, that's, the stories are everything. But actually, there's a problem when the stories get out of sync with 
with reality. And that's the problem of climate change, is that, is that the stories we've told ourselves that humanity can do anything have rather forgotten the reality that the planet uh, is, is being um, desecrated by what we do by virtue of the power of our stories. I want people to see Folkestone for what it is, as well as see it for the stories that people tell about it. So I've got some great stories in, embedded in the exhibition, which people are going to really struggle to see <laughs> because, story, because stories in reality are not in sync very often. Just for the punter who's going to come and see the wonderful triennial, it's uh, not a lot of people know this, but actually Folkestone's less than an hour away from London if you get the fast train from St Pancras. But once you get there on your speedy train, there's a lot to take in in the triennial. Can you do it as a day trip or... Would you recommend spending longer? I know you get a lovely guide when you arrive, so you're taken around and by yourself, as it were, and sh the stories are revealed. Yes, we've arranged this this triennial, this exhibition this year in three separate walks. So the idea is that you, you take one walk of an hour and a half and have then stop for a coffee or a break or whatever, and then take so th three walks through the day. But of course, we already have um, 76 artworks, uh, contemporary artworks um, around um, Folkestone embedded in the, um, in the urban fabric. And so if you want to see all of the fantastic artworks resulting from previous triennials, you would probably have to spend uh, two or three days. But, 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 it's, but for, it's, a, it's a fantastic day out just to see um, uh, this year's triennial exhibition. Now, this whole drive towards making Folkestone an artistic hub has already had a massively positive impact on the whole town. The old scenic harbour has become a creative quarter populated by artists, 90 buildings restored, over 500 jobs created. Now, this is all music to our ears on this podcast because it's proof that supporting the arts really does enhance life on every level. So did, when you started out on all this, did you foresee that this whole push towards creativity would have such a positive outcome or has it gone beyond what you hoped? The wonderful thing about Folkestone is, is that it is innately, I mean, it's got a, an amazing site geographically. So you can't go far, I mean, even, even in its most miserable phase, I suspect it was still a good place to live in some sense. Uh, because the geography is so good, the, the the cliffs and the sea and the river, and I mean, it's a short walk to the uh, Kent area of outstanding natural beauty on the, along the North Downs. So all of these, all of these things, have all, uh, regardless of the economic situation in Folkestone, have made it a great place to to live. So starting with that advantage, um, every every advance that can be in terms of the economic situation uh, is a, is an investment triply worth doing. I mean, I should say, uh, we should uh, give a quick shout out to Roger DeHaan and explain who he is, because he uh, was the owner of Saga. In fact, he's now again the owner of Saga, but he sold it. Uh, he and his brother sold it and made a tidy sum. But the great thing about Roger was he's put an enormous amount of investment into Folkestone and uh, Ramsgate, and he's turned Folkestone around. And he's, he deliberately set out to make it a kind of creative town, it's got fabulous restaurants, it's got an artist quarter, it's got studios for artists, which they can rent at uh, reasonable rates. I mean, I, the reason I love it so much and the reason I wanted, obviously, to highlight the triennial on the podcast is that I think it is, you've talked about creative placemaking. It is a wonderful example of how culture can act as an amazing catalyst for uh, urban renewal, if I can use that terribly sort of slightly bureaucratic term. And now you see it with Margate as well. All these towns on the south coast are really 
to a certain extent, enjoying a renaissance. We sometimes think that, that what Sir Roger has done is, um, as it were, unusual or new. And in the context of, of, the, of, the, of what's going on in the last couple of decades, uh, it, is, it is just extremely unusual. But in the 19th century, it was normal for people who made a lot of money to put that money back into their own community. So there's a, there's a fantastic tradition there which has unfortunately withered because so many people um, take their money and put it in offshore uh, offshore uh, securities. Yes, I think that's a good point. I mean, uh, obviously you go to towns like Manchester and Newcastle and you see what the 19th century merchants did for their, um, for their environment. And of course, a lot of those museums uh, rely on collections that were built up and given to cities and towns in the 19th century. But it is, uh, I would strongly recommend anyone listening to this podcast to uh, find a day in the next uh, from July between July and September and knit down to Folkestone you're in for an absolute treat not just obviously with the triennial itself but also just uh, walking around the town and enjoying its now many facilities. Can you tell us a bit about the exhibits and which ones if any are going to stay forever? Well, I, I can't tell you which one's going to stay forever. I hope very much that some of them will. For instance, there is some there is there is some artworks which I which I, which would be a real shame if they didn't stay. Um, like uh, Assemble, you know, the Turner Prize winning um, group uh, Assemble are working with local skaters here in order to make skatable sculptures. So these wow. are. <laughs> and um uh, a bit dangerous we, for the traffic <laughs> <laughs> well uh, we're we're putting them in places where um the skaters can hang out where where we know that they like to hang out and so that goes a lot that, that initiative goes along with another of sir roger's um initiatives which is the f51 building which is a, a, a multi-story skate park built to Olympic sport standards, which is going to be right here in, in the creative quarter in, in Folkestone. Richard Deacon is making some granite uh, sculptures for us, um, in, which kind of play on the idea of benches. Um, Folkestone is absolutely full of benches because people love to sit and look at the, at the sea or sit on the leaves and watch people go by. And so the, the bench is a kind of Folkestone theme. And Richard had picked up on that and has made some fabulous um, benches out of granite. So I'm, they're going to be, I hope they're going to be um, permanent too. There is, um, there is Atakwami, who's a, a really fabulous artist, um, Ghanaian artist, is, uh, has made some sculptures in the, in the shape of kiosks, uh, riffing on kind of um, the third world commerce. And we are placing those very near the civic centre in Folkestone to, to get people to think about uh, the circulation of, 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 of goods and exchange of goods. And um, they are just beautiful, very colourful sculptures. I hope very much we can hang on to those after the exhibition. What about Gilbert and George? Um, I'm, I'm really proud um, to, be, to, to, to be working with them in Folkestone because uh, in, with outdoor artworks, because it's not something which they've done very much in this country. They've done, they did one huge outdoor artwork for the High Line in, in, um, in New York. But, uh, but you know, their work, their work 
you know, belongs in real life better. I mean, it, it's a shame that we always see it in galleries in a sense, because it, because it really does, it comes from real life and it belongs in real life. And, and I think that, um, that it will look absolutely fantastic uh, dotted around uh, Folkestone. We have a minibus uh, by the artist Mike Stubbs, um, which is called Climate Emergency Services, which is, uh, which is going to, um, which can move around to schools and to festivals and so on, um, uh, raising consciousness about climate emergency that we're in. You should see it, but it's a it's a very it's a very aggressive uh, external image this this uh, this minibus has. But inside, it's been turned into a laboratory where you can study pollution and temperature change and and so on. So I, I think that'll be a fabulous longer term artwork. Well, it sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, and when does it open? 22nd? Uh, twin, it's open to public from the 22nd of July to the 2nd of November. We are arranging guided tours for dog walkers and for cyclists and for joggers, and for, uh, but mainly for walkers. Oh, well, thank you so much. We really look forward to it. If you live in East London, there's going to be a one night only but totally free contemporary arts festival on the 17th of July between 6 and 11 p.m. It's going to involve 16 artists across 12 sites. This is the third edition of Nocturnal Creatures, as this festival is known. It's the brainchild of the Whitechapel Gallery, which celebrates its 120th anniversary this year. So, for one night only, the gallery and nearby and unusual historical spaces are going to be transformed by installations, films, live performances, music, and, of course, food. Yum. And that's not all, as Whitechapel Gallery is collaborating with Sculpture in the City and Arts Admin. We're going to be laying on other exciting tours around Sculpture in the City and more. Here to tell us all about it is the director of the Whitechapel Gallery, Ivona Blazik. Good morning, Ivona. Good morning. Thank you for that great introduction. Well, good morning. And it's great to have you with us. Now, this is a great event for the East End. There's also going to be lots more going on in the gallery itself, but there are going to be dancers in Allgate Square and lots more. So tell our listeners what they're going to see. So the Whitechapel Gallery is in an amazing part of London, which has this incredible architectural history. The Huguenots came there in the 17th century and built those wonderful houses that we can see around Spitalfields. It's got a, an astonishing Victorian legacy of great philanthropists like Toynbee, Passmore Edwards, and our own founder, Canon Barnett. So it's got the most incredible building stock. And this uh, series of live events and installations really really opens our eyes, I think, to the wonders of the East End of London. It's an opportunity to wander around, get horribly lost and have some really interesting <laughs> encounters. So, for example, um, Toynbee Hall, which is this recently renovated, beautiful late 19th century hall. Inside will be um, an artist called Paula Morrison, who's sewing a one-to-one -one scale map of a flat for the length of time it would take to buy that space when being paid the London living wage. So there's a political aspect to this. There'll also be Ines Neto dos Santos, who is obsessed with food as a kind of ritual and network, um, and also a way of kind of uh, having agency over our own destiny. And so she's put the call out for people to grow beans. And we're going to have a whole green <laughs> bean growing network. And we're going to have food at our restaurant towns and based on beans. We're going to have beans growing uh, in various spaces around the Whitechapel Gallery. And meanwhile, uh, Julian Connects 
is a spoken word performer and he is going to be making a series of performances based on breathing. And that, of course, very much connects with the events of last year around George Floyd being able to breathe and that as a kind of metaphor for freedom. Um, we've also got uh, Abbas Sahedi, who will be in an old police station on Brick Lane and there will be a kind of community-based programme where lots of people are going to be telling their life stories. And Candida Powell-Williams, she takes us across to the city to Aldgate Square. She's an amazing performer who makes her own props. They're these gigantic pop art eye-popping structures and she performs with dancers. They're all in costume. It's very carnivalesque and it will bring kind of life and colour to the City of London. Working with sculpture in the city, uh, we've placed 19 sculptures around the City of London. So that really takes you into the concrete jungle. These amazing glass and steel buildings, the Gherkin, some of the highest buildings in the UK. But at their bases, you'll be able to find the most beautiful work. Some of them are about poetry, about sound. Many of them are really, really colourful. And part of the delicious aspect of the whole thing is, of course, getting lost and finding yourself exploring completely unknown territory. Sounds absolutely brilliant, but let's just also focus on the Whitechapel Gallery itself. Tell us a bit about its history, because 120 years as a gallery, and I don't think it started life as a gallery. It was actually started as a picture show by two very, very venerable and, and I think, you know, transformative philanthropists, which is Henrietta and Canon Barnett. Henrietta Barnett was behind the uh, Hampstead Garden Suburbs development and also a whole development of schools, particularly for girls. Yes, there's still Henrietta Barnett School. Exactly. And Canon Barnett, he started working actually with Toynbee on picture shows. The reason he chose pictures as a way of bringing transformation to the people of the East End was because they were mostly illiterate. He then, buoyed up by the huge success of these temporary picture shows, found a plot of land on Whitechapel High Street, hired the great architect Charles Harrison Townsend, and his first instructions were based on looking around London and realising that all the other galleries in London, the British Museum, for example, the Royal Academy, uh, the National Gallery, all based on the Parthenon. If you look really carefully, they've all got a temple-like architecture of steps leading up to a portico. So his first instruction to the architect was no steps. He wanted no obstacle between the street and the art. So the very first exhibition was called Great British Art, and it started with Constable, it went through the Pre-Raphaelites, and it came up to the early modern period, 1900s, 1901. And for that exhibition, we received 263,000 visitors, mostly Gosh. illiterate. Some say it's because it was the first time they'd seen electric lights, but I say it was the art. And at the moment, we are celebrating an under-the-radar British surrealist called Eileen Agar. And Agar, who was a young heiress from Argentina, in the 1916, she wanted to come and study at the Slade, one of our great art schools, still one of the greatest art schools in, in the UK. And her mother put her on a boat from Buenos Aires with a string quartet and uh, so she could have music on the journey and a living dairy cow so that Eileen could have fresh milk every day. So when she arrived, <laughs> she went to the Slade and at the end of a very, very academic kind of education, which was drawing from plaster casts and learning the classics really in art, she destroyed everything she did, shaved her head and ran off to Paris where she danced on the rooftops and then 
uh, met the Surrealists. She met Picasso and uh, Breton and Dali and Paul Eloir and realised that this was the future, this was the avant-garde. She realised that Cubism and Surrealism was the way forward and started creating an astonishing body of work. In the end, carried on working until 1991. So she was nearly 100 years old and her creativity remained undimmed. Alongside, we have a great new commission, two new commissions, one by in one of India's most prominent artists, Nalini Milani. We also have a platform for guest collections and right across the road, Commercial Road, is the um, headquarters of the Hiscox Insurance Company. They happen to have one of the most amazing collections of art for their employees. We have a selection of those works made by a Venezuelan artist called Sol Calero, and she's taken them from that rather bland office environment of the strip lighting and the grey carpet and the open plan offices and transformed them by putting them in a tropical environment. So we have our walls are kind of uh, ice cream or sorbet colours of apricot and turquoise and it's the most extraordinary vivid installation and they've been transformed into uh, as if they're objects in a tropical home in a lush jungle. And then finally, we have a very young artist indeed. In fact, she's a graduate of our youth programme. She's called Ayo Akimbado, and she's made two films. So that, in a nutshell, is what our visitors will be able to see inside our building. That's the hub for nocturnal creatures, and that will be the starting point, I hope, for people to set out and explore the marvels of the East End. Well, it sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and tell us about it. Thank you so much. That's all we've got time for this week, but don't forget our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Annette, a favourite with everyone interested in interior design. This week's Carol's guest is Deborah Bass, who combines studying psychotherapy with being an interior designer for her company. You can find that podcast and all details of everything we've talked about today on our website, which is countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And if you add forward slash newsletter to that address, you can see all our newsletters, surprisingly. Our new July Great British Brands newsletter, which celebrates summer weddings, and also our new travel newsletter, which launches this week on the 9th of July. The first 100 people to sign up to our travel newsletter will receive a free copy of this year's gorgeous Great British and Irish Hotels Guide. So do be sure to subscribe and please do keep subscribing to this podcast. We'll be back next week for our last podcast before we take a break for the summer. So do make sure you listen in. Goodbye. Goodbye.